Okay, well, we happen to be starting a new section once again as we continue our way through the Baptist Catechism. We had last week off, of course, because of the church picnic. That was a good time of fellowship and fun. But the week before that, we closed the section that was on the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and how the person of the second member of the Trinity would impact our doctrine of salvation uh, through the redemptive work that he was going to apply to his saints uh, through the work of the Spirit, which is what we're getting into now tonight. Uh, that, that closed up that section, and now we're starting a new section. If you have the copy of the Catechism that we made available to you guys, it would show that this is now beginning the section of the Christian teachings called salvation, which is from a conjunction of two words, uh, from the, the word loge, which means teaching or doctrine, and then soteria, which, is, which means salvation, of course, but more, more specifically, deliverance and resolution as well. But when we think of the Christian doctrine of salvation, we're meaning something very specific. Uh, and and, and it's, again, it's more than just deliverance, but also a, a restoration to spiritual health. And that restoration is, is not experienced in the fullest and completest terms, of course, not, not right away, not here and now, um, which is important to make that distinction because there are professing Christians who want to teach that. Those, those that buy into the prosperity gospel, or we might call it the American idealist gospel, this notion that thinks that we're supposed to have all of heaven's benefits now, and if we don't, maybe it's because of some lack of faith in you. But that's not the biblical doctrine of salvation. The biblical doctrine of salvation exists in this tension, this already and not yet tension. Our salvation has been started. We are even in a way that is mysterious to us. It is true what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, that we are already reigning with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places, and we are even blessed now with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But it's in this stage of having already been started, yet it's not yet completed. And so from outside of time, from the, maybe the vantage point of God himself, which is really impossible for us to think fully and perfectly in that category, of course, maybe from like the vantage point of God's eternal decree, our salvation, start to finish, is as good as done. God has saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us. He perseveres his saints in their deliverance and restoration from start to finish. And so that's why Romans 8.30, if you have your, your Bible, is, it's the well-known golden chain of redemption as it's been come, as come to be known as. And so Romans 8.30 says this, and if you notice, all the adjectives are in the past, are in the past tense. So he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified... He also glorified. So all of those four adjectives are all in the past tense. From God's point of view, salvation is done. But even those, even though those eternal realities, based upon what God has done and what God does, we still experience them in this tension. This already, what theologians know, what pastors are called, this already and not yet tension. So we aren't actually glorified, fully glorified right now, even though we've been predestined and called and justified and what the Bible says glorified that we've been predestined and called and justified in time it's already good it absolutely changes us but it will be even better when Jesus consummates his kingdom or when we go to be with him in glory as we 
uh, you know, thinking of our brother Jose, and, and, and even, even more wonderfully, it's going to be even better for Jose than it is now and for anybody else who's already in the intermediate state when they get their eternal bodies and the all of new creation is consummated and we live bodily with our Lord and Savior. It really is a, a marvelous and wonderful thing that God has done for us. And that happens again when Christ comes for a second time, also known as the parousia. So you see, for right now though, we experience salvation on this side of eternity. Uh, we need to think of it rightly as it exists in this tension. And this will maybe be helpful as we think about those who have been deceived again by the prosperity gospel or again this idea of you know having everything good, having the kids you want, the job you want, the, the family you want, the car, all that stuff is all lined up. That's not really the, the gospel. Um, the gospel deals with much more than that. It, those people who want to remove the already not yet tension and experience the fullness of blessing here and now, as well as the other side of the error, which isn't really observed much, but those people that think of that this life here and now is supposed to be only suffering until we get to glory. I, it's, um, I don't know a specific name for that, but I remember my uncle who grew up in Roman... Well, yes, definitely pessimistic. I don't let the post-millennials try to tell us uh, what that is. But uh, my, um, my uncle, who grew up Roman Catholic, and he, I don't think he's saved, but he's had a, a salvation type of experience. And I remember him, like, he had a Lexus. He took a ballpoint hammer, and he just destroyed his car with it. And he, he thought that having these worldly possessions was wrong and evil and thought that he needed to suffer, and he got rid of all this other stuff as well, too. But both sides of those coins are wrong. Um, where you want the fullness of, of salvation and, or you want just pure suffering now. Salvation, as these next nine questions are going to lay out for us in this section. Uh, the Catechism has nine questions based on this topic. We'll see that salvation, or Christian salvation specifically, is a salvation both from the reigning power of sin and from the ultimate consequences of sin. We're set free to live for Christ. Our chains are gone Christ is our loving master, and we can, by grace, choose to do what is right and pleasing before God. doesn't mean that we always will. We still struggle against the flesh. It's a serious and hard battle. But it is true that we have been set free from the reigning power of sin and from the ultimate consequences of sin. Unfortunately, it's, it's commonly taught, when you think of salvation, that it's salvation is primarily salvation from hell or eternal condemnation and punishment. And while, of course, it is true that those we are delivered from those things we are saved from experiencing those judgments that idea is misplaced it, it is true that we'll be spared from the ultimate consequences of sin but the scriptures are also very clear that we are primarily saved from sin itself Amen. Right? It, it's more than just the consequences we're saved from sin's guilt from its penalty from its pollution from its reigning or controlling power in life as Romans 6 points out but again it's not you know, just done because Romans 7, where Paul struggles with that indwelling sin, that remaining sin. And this present deliverance is it's found in regeneration, in conversion, in justification, in adoption, in sanctification. Those are all topics that we're going to be hitting and covering over the next coming months. And of course, um, again, salvation also contains with it deliverance from the eternal consequences of sin, but it restores us in such a way that we're able to live and desire uh, right and pleasing things because of what Christ has done in us here and now. Yet, at the same time, and we have to be careful about this, it doesn't exclude us, it doesn't necessarily exclude us from the immediate consequences of sin. 
the effects of sin before you were saved, or perhaps even the effects of the sin that you make after you're saved. So, where, so whereas a Christian can and should, by grace, have a great assurance and knowledge of our pardon against the ultimate consequences of sin, it doesn't mean that the immediate consequences of sin will be removed from us, especially if we continue to live on in sin after receiving Christ. That's why scriptures are filled with warnings and admonishments to, to turn from your sin, to put your sin to death, because even here and now, even though we have been delivered from the power of sin in our lives, and we certainly don't have to fear those eternal consequences from it, if we continue in sin, and even if we are a true Christian, that might obviously display the fact that you're not a true Christian, but that is worked out in time in the context of a local church, the reality is that the immediate consequences of sin still have an impact on our lives. Uh, those issues of poor health that come from you know, dissipation, from, from you know, not treating our body as good stewards, in other words, from abusing alcohol or, or legal drugs or food even, salvation isn't going to cure those things immediately in this already not yet tension. Um, salvation isn't going to cure the you know, disease that was transmitted through immor immoral choices that you have made. And before you were saved, and, and look, God forbid, an immoral choice that you might make even after you're saved. Uh, Christian men and women fall in that category, sadly. It doesn't mean that they're not saved. Again, it has to be worked out in the local church context and over time and through the through the process of church discipline that the Lord gave us for those things, but the immediate consequences of sin still affects us even here and now, even though we have the eternal consequences of sin um, as not a problem for us. Uh, God is not obligated to cure terminal sickness due to sin. He's not obligated to cure a, a broken or ruined marriage or a broken home. I mean, there are people who come to Christ before becoming a Christian their family was in shambles. Well, salvation doesn't mean that that broken family will certainly be repaired now. It might. Lord willing, we pray and we hope that those things are. But it's not, God's not obligated in that regard when we speak of salvation. A, a Christian, a saved Christian, will still suffer the consequences of their sin. Think of a person who's in jail who receives Christ. They're not automatically set free out of jail, right? They still have to serve the time that they have accrued because of justice. Now God, in any of those situations and others, he could change them. And again, it's okay to pray for such things. It's right that we pray for such things. And he might do it as part of his plan to glorify himself. But what we need to understand is that we want to approach the doctrine of salvation with a sense of maturity and a right thinking of it. And, and especially in light of what others teach about it there, is that even though God saves us from the reigning power of sin and the ultimate consequences of sin, he doesn't necessarily, or he's not mandated to deliver us from the immediate consequences of sin. And again, that should be an admonishment or an encouragement to us to pursue holiness as his sons and daughters. We, we don't want to come under the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father. Right? I mean, it's good that we do. A father disciplines a son and daughter whom he loves. But we don't want to come under that. We want to please our Lord God and because we have been saved. We don't want to please him in order to earn our salvation. We want to please him because he has been saved. And our salvation, this doctrine of salvation, a category that we'll deal with tonight, um, it doesn't eradicate the principle of indwelling sin and remaining corruption with the believer. And actually, we're going to deal with this category over the next four questions, so two tonight and two next week. Uh, we don't, we're not, this, what, what we're talking about tonight through the effectual calling, 
the Christ's work of redemption being applied to us, it doesn't eradicate our, our fallen nature completely in such a way that we just don't sin anymore. That, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen no matter... You, you can never reach a point of sanctification in this life before Christ comes back in which you're not struggling against your flesh in some way. That's unbiblical to teach that you would. It doesn't, it doesn't happen until our physical death. We talked about that actually months ago when we were discussing the, the different natures, the fourfold state of man. I don't know if you remember that. I'm not sure exactly what question that was even, but we did deal with that. So the Apostle Paul himself goes into detail with this again in, in Romans chapter 7, how when he speaks about even though he has been saved and delivered from this uh, body of death, this body of death nevertheless still compels him to sin, and he knows the law of himself in which he wants to part serve Christ, but then his flesh wants to serve sin. And so we all will live in this, um, this tension. So the, the total removal of, of sin in our lives, again, that's coming. That's, that's not yet, it, but it is, of course, coming. And nevertheless, the process of salvation has been started. It has begun for those who are saved, and God will keep us through it. It's not to say that you can't have the process of salvation starting in life and then fall out of that. People do teach that. But that's heretical. That's not true. Once you have been united to Christ, we'll get into this more, you, you remain there. Um, but there are people, of course, who profess to be united to Christ and, in fact, really were not. Right? That's what John says, that they went out from us because they were not of us. So now, our questions for tonight, they deal with how salvation begins uh, in time. In, in time is an important distinction. Two questions uh, for tonight, they're closely related. How are, we, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? But rather than dealing with these questions together, I'm going to separate them and approach them one at a time. Although they're obviously systematic, they obviously build off of each other. Uh, and really, they build off what was previous in the Catechism as well. They, um, the first question speaks of us being made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ. And so if you remember back to the previous section, uh, the section of Jesus Christ, it was there affirmed that Jesus, and only Jesus, is the redeemer of his people. Not Jesus for some people, and then you know Muhammad or Buddha for other people at other places. No, Jesus is the only redeemer of God's elect. He's the only mediator between God and man. And we, we learned also that in his office of a priest, he lives to make intercession for those that are united to, to him by faith. And... It's so Christ and Christ alone. It's his active and his passive obedience for us as he executes as redeemer those offices of prophet, priest, and king, those three necessary offices that were essential for him to be able to save us. And again, we went over these already. So now this is the fruit of that. It's building on top of that. So we remove, from the re- remove now from the redemption purchased by our Lord now to the, the Lord Jesus, now to the application of it by the Holy Spirit. And let me just say this, it's at this point, too, where we really need to exhibit an extra helping of discernment, of discernment in our age. And, and that was it's true for every age, of course, as well. But uh, I see it now, especially being a temptation for many. All of us, uh, when in whatever age we have lived in since Christ's ascension, we are living in what the Bible would call a present evil age. It's this time in between Christ's first and second coming. But it's not uncommon today, and even in the past it hasn't been common either, for there to be these so-called ecumenical movements 
in which different churches of different theological convictions will get together for the work of gospel ministry, even though they have a big disagreement in this area that we're talking about tonight, this area of how a person is actually saved. And so even if we as Baptists might share a similar theology proper, in other words, a similar doctrine of God, with people like the Roman Catholics, uh, for example, the difference here where it comes to salvation as, as such is so large that it would in fact be sinful for us to cooperate with them for the work of gospel ministry. And that even might extend to some Lutherans, some Methodists, and even perhaps other Baptists and Presbyterians as well. We need to have discernment in this regard. Because remember, the Apostle Paul confronted Peter to his face when he began to tamper with the gospel. When he started to believe the Judaizers' claims and started to distinguish between um, the Gentiles and the Jews and, and the need for circumcision to be accepted before God's sight. And then he also wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 1.9, just a couple chapters over from Romans. He says there, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema, in other words. Let him be, is a strong word, it, it, let him be cut off from the possibility of salvation. That's not to say that you can somehow, it's an unpardonable sin or something like that, but the point is that it's so serious that we can't flirt around with it, we can't play with it. The doctrine of salvation is not something that we should take lightly at all. So all of that to say is that these are serious matters that we're thinking of here when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, and we need to depend upon the wisdom from above as we think about cooperating with others. We should cooperate with others, especially as we see the day getting all the more evil. I mean, we see this world just going headlong into chaos, into uh, judgment from the Lord, and there may be ways in which we should work with other believers in different uh, churches, but we have to be careful so as to not try to yoke with like-minded people socially when it comes at jeopardy of, of damaging what the gospel of, of Christ is and how it is that a person is saved. Even if we share a similar theology proper, right? even if we could say with another congregation, oh yes, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, we, we also need to consider how it is that they teach redemption is applied to us, as well as the rest of doctrines concerning salvation, because it matters and you don't want to lose the doctrine of salvation in the process. So for the question um, that we have tonight, the first one, there are three issues in consideration for it. Uh, first, the relationship between the accomplishment and the application of redemption, and then the trinity in salvation, and then just a recap on the biblical doctrine of grace. So first, that the relationship between the accomplishment and the application of redemption. Our Lord Christ Jesus, did not purchase redemption. That is, he did not live a sinless life and then suffer and die merely to make men savable or to provide an indefinite or ambiguous atonement. Jesus did not go to the cross to provide a general atonement that covered all of humanity. His, his active obedience fulfilled the demands of the law of God, which they're all moral, of course, uh, it includes specifically the moral law, those ten words, the ten commandments, uh, which all people are obliged to obey because we're created in the image of God. All people, Romans 2.15 says that they have the work of the law written on their heart. And so Paul uses that as a way to convict the Roman church 
there of, of how Gentiles would actually do what was right before God as a testimony to them having, again, this work of the law written on their hearts, the light of nature. But also, Jesus, when he, his act of obedience consisted of him fulfilling the aspects of the law that were specific to the nation of Israel, the ceremonial law and the judicial law, those, those segments of the law of God that were specific to Old Covenant or Old Testament Israel. And his passive obedience was a satisfaction or a propitiation of divine justice. So he, there on the cross, where he took the punishment that he didn't deserve, where he stood in the place of sinners who, who do deserve it, that's his passive obedience. He accomplishes a full and complete redemption for his people according to the divine purpose. So notice Luke 19.10, when we think about what that divine purpose is. Luke 19.10. This was, we used to have like a middle school only group uh, at the church a long time ago. And this was, you know, you have like a, a verse that is attached to the ministry. That's the thing that, that people do. This was that verse. And it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If I ask, how could he fail in that? Could God fail in doing what he wanted to do and still remain God? You know, if, if we were to say yes to that question, we would be applying creaturely characteristics to the Creator. But our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, Psalm 115.3 says. Or consider 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul's writing to young elder, 1 Timothy 1.15. There he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's a trustworthy saying. Did you catch that? Imagine if you were to say that Christ Jesus only came into the world to make sinners savable. That would totally flip this verse on its head. It, it would take all the meaning out of, out of the confidence that he has here that he writes to Timothy that's supposed to encourage him and inspire him to be faithful in the work of gospel ministry. But no, it's a trustworthy saying, one deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, not to make people merely savable, but to actually redeem a people, to deliver a people. So Jesus' redemptive work is a finished work with an infinite value. It, the son of God, it costs the Son of God there to go to the cross to have his blood shed for us. And it was accepted. We know that because he didn't stay dead. His resurrection is the proof of his victory and our future resurrection as well. And it was all based on the plan of God which existed before time. But this redemption is accomplished and efficaciously applied in time. And we experience, each of God's elect experience it through the work of the Holy Spirit applying it to them. All according to God's eternal, infallible, and redemptive purpose. So the ordained means for this, this application of the of Christ's work of redemption to the, uh, to the individual is the preaching of the gospel. And I, I'm, I don't want to step on too many toes because that's going to be coming up in the next two questions as well, so I won't say much here. But this purchasing of redemption <laughs> by Christ and the subsequent application, he's teaching next. That's why I'm trying not to say what he already wants to say. Um, but the purchasing of redemption... 
don't follow Adam's advice. Sorry, I would. Okay. <laughs> but this purchasing of redemption by Christ and subsequent application of it to us by the Spirit forms the, the covenantal and redemptive basis for the believer's conversion and subsequent Christian experience. Uh, it's the reason as to why we are converted, and then it's the reason as to why we live the life that we live after it happens to us. The application of Christ's redemption to us converts us. It takes children who are people, I mean, who are by nature children of wrath, and makes them sons and daughters of God and the recipients of an internal inheritance in Christ. It converts us. It changes us. It brings us into the Christian experience of life that is marked by true love, grace, and mercy. That's how you know if someone has actually been converted, there is a change in their life. If there's no change, the person continues to live carnally or worldly, whatever adjective you want to use to describe it. You, there shouldn't be much assurance that, that there really was a effectual work of the Spirit in their life. Because the effectual call changes, converts us. It brings us into the covenant of grace. Well done. The, the Spirit's application of Christ's redemption to us removes us from the covenant of works in which Adam represented us. He was our the first man, Adam. He was our covenant head or covenant representative. And then it makes it so that Christ is our representative with the covenant of grace. And so we receive all the benefits of Christ's redeeming work and we respond to it in faith with the faith that God gives us, Ephesians 2, because it has converted us. So the Catechism cites John 1. Let's look at John 1, it begins at verse 11, and then it goes to catechism sites to verse 12. I want to go to verse 13. Because this, it shows the relationship here that we're speaking of between the redemption that Christ purchased and the application to it uh, from the Spirit. Verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you see what's happening here, right? Jesus comes through and to the old covenant people of God, old covenant Israel. Many of them don't receive them. Uh, many of them, John 3 tells us why. People love the darkness rather than the light. They love their own sin rather than love the God who would redeem them from that sin. And so many of them don't receive them, but those who do believe in his name are given the right to become children of God. Now, that means not everyone is given the right, correct? You see that only those who believe in his name are given that right. And those that believe, those ones who were given the right, it's because all past tense, they were born, past tense, right? They were born not of the will of man, not of born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yeah. It's of God. It's not of a human accomplishment. It's but of God. Now, there's a lot there again, and how that impacts us. We'll save that, though, for the upcoming questions. But you're thinking of the, the relationship between the two something that Christ accomplished that the Spirit applies to us because we've been born of God. That's how this, that's a way of the Bible telling us how the Spirit applies it to us. Now, 
as the answer to 32 says, because we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application to, of it to us, but then it gives us the how, is by his Holy Spirit, and then it cites Titus 3, 5, and 6. That's our second category for this section, the Trinity and salvation. The, the doctrine of the Trinity is basic to the understanding of the doctrine of salvation. In other words, you get the doctrine of the Trinity wrong, you absolutely have the doctrine of salvation wrong. They're, they're intrinsic to one another. You can't have one right and the, and the other one wrong. You can't, you know, then the reverse of that would be true as well. You can't have salvation right, but then be wrong on the Trinity. If you're wrong on the Trinity, that should tell you that you're actually probably wrong on salvation as well, too. It's a first-tier issue among Christian doctrine is what we call that. And I always struggle with defining those different tiered issues, uh, but certainly I'm very comfortable saying that the Trinity is a foundational Christian doctrine that must be agreed upon and, and believed upon is what the Bible teaches for one to be truly uh, affirmed in their faith. So, at the same time, getting the Trinity right you might still get salvation wrong, as we've seen through church history as well, too. Again, the Roman Catholic Church, they have a correct theology proper, but they get salvation wrong. So what the scripture testifies to us here is that God gave an elect people to his son. Think John 17, 2 through 4, Romans 8, 20 to 39, or Ephesians 1, 3 to 7. And he also gave his son to be the only redeemer for the elect people. And the Son, Jesus, accomplished a full and final redemption for this elect people, Hebrews 7 and 9 especially, but really the whole letter to the, to the Hebrews even. And then the Holy Spirit effectually applies this redemption to the elect in time and experience. So, friends, this is the covenant of redemption as, as played out. This is God's plan in redemptive history, engaging every person chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world in time. The Father chooses, the Son lives for and dies for, the Holy Spirit applies this redemption in time specifically. Salvation is the singular work of God with each person of the Godhead performing a specific function, but note, these functions are all born out of one will. They all work together. We don't have, in other words, think of like the doctrine of inseparable operations. They're not working against each other. They have the Father, Son, and Spirit work in one will to save those that were chosen in Christ through the covenant of redemption, which again happened in God's eternal decree before anything was ever created at all, before time began as we think of it. So we don't have the Father wanting everyone to be saved, and then the Son dying for everyone, but then the Holy Spirit failing to apply it to everyone, right? They work together to redeem the elect. The, the Godhead isn't divided in salvation, brothers and sisters. And so the Catechism types three, Titus 3, 5, and 6 there. Let's look at that. I want to start at verse 4, though. I don't know what our Baptist forefathers were doing here, but they are just, they start or they end one verse too early. <laughs> right here. So verse 3 in Titus 3. Or no, verse 4. We'll start at verse 4 and we'll go to 6. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
So you see the whole covenant of redemption there, even in those three verses, actually. Three persons are mentioned. There is the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior. That's the Father. He saved us. We don't do it. He did it. Uh, we don't do it because of the works of righteousness done by us, but it's according to his mercy. And that mercy was through Jesus Christ. That's verse 6. But back to verse 5. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's all right there. Salvation is from the mind of God, worked out in time, and applied to us in time through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And any system which claims to be Christian must be judged according to its faithfulness or unfaithfulness to this revealed truth. Because otherwise you lose Christianity if this is not observed. Because it's Father, Son, and Spirit accomplishing redemption together. One God, one will, three persons who work to save the elect, all for it to bring about his glory and ultimate uh, life of, in the new creation where we worship God for eternity. So it's, a, it's a, an amazing blessing that we are numbered among such a wonderful thing. So this makes us think of the third category because we don't do anything to, to get it, the doctrine of biblical grace. And this is really just refresher as we talked about grace before, but it's good to be clear about it as we begin to think about the category of salvation. Divine grace, as one commentator puts it, is unmerited, meaning it's totally undeserved, favor in the stead of or in, in place of, merited, which means totally deserved, wrath. That means there is absolutely no good or foreseen goodness in either sinful mankind as, or as a whole um, in any sinner corporately or individually which causes God to act in this way. It's unmerited, not merited. Even saving faith itself is a gift of God sovereignly bestowed upon us, Ephesians 2.8. And if saving faith and repentance were inherent, were natural to man by our nature, then they would become a work, as just are the simple human ability. But these are gracious gifts that God gives to us in the effectual call. Again, more on that um, next time. When we receive them and we, and we exercise them after we have received them. They're not natural to human ability because saving faith and repentance please God. And man in his fallen nature does not want to or cannot even do that. It's Romans 8, 7 to 8. Now that ability was lost in the image of God when it was marred in the fall. And it's restored to us after we've been born again so that we might desire to uh, please God in such a, in such a manner. Now, saving grace is not some passive or neutral principle. It's a gift which operates in us, which is totally undeserved. And any distinction within a person which would cause God's grace to be put forth, if that was the case, if we could demand somehow God's grace to be extended to any of us, it would destroy the very principle of grace and the very nature of grace. Saving grace is mediated through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, He's the very personification of divine grace even. And every aspect of salvation and the Christian experience exists out of the necessity of the redemption purchased by Christ and the believer's subsequent union with him. It's the power put forth by God and from God to both save the sinner and then enable the person, the believer, to live godly in Christ Jesus. And I hope that we all know that power here tonight. And for those of us who don't, it's our hope and our prayer that, that you will. But it is something that God accomplishes 
And it's something that we're instructed to pray for if you don't have it. And so if you desire that, pray for that. We're, we're instructed to do so. That prayer is a means of grace by which God works out his will. So you're, you're called to do that. So that brings us to our next question, which 33 says, How does the Spirit apply to us through redemption purchased by Christ? So the truth of the believer's calling and all the benefits of it are going to be considered in question 34. So at this point, it's question 33, I think it would be easier just to explore a central aspect to our joy in life with God, the believer's union with Christ. And we're just scratching the surface here because this is a topic that is profound and deep, and I mean, you couldn't do it in you know, 10, 15 minutes. Anyways, you really wanted to try, but we're, we combined two questions into one here, not really knowing how we we're going to all how this all plays out, but nevertheless, I'm going to try to give a, a quick introduction to the topic of the believer's union with Christ, because, um, again, the details of it will be given in question 34, but this answer does touch on union with Christ. Note the answer. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us, and then it cites some verses, and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. And again, this is a vast and profound topic, so I'm just trying to give an introduction uh, to this topic that really does produce joy and inspires us to uh, live faithfully and gives us a great assurance in our walk with God. So the, the scriptures clearly teach that every true Christian, without exception, has been brought into a spiritual union with Christ, and that this vital relationship finds its foundation in the eternal redemptive purposes of God, and it's contrasted with, then, the union or identification of all humanity in Adam. So we had more time. We could look at Romans 5, 12 to the end of that chapter, or also 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 90. Um, our union with Christ, sometimes referred to as our mystical union with him, see John Calvin especially. And it's not mystical in the sense that we would think mystical. I'm just saying if you read older theologians and you see them talking about a mystical union, it's not to think of necessarily mystical in the way that we think of mystical being contrary to Christianity today. It just means that we can't really explain it. Don't know how it actually adds together, but nevertheless we see the evidence of it and we read of it in scripture as well. But this union finds its reality in the incarnation and the redemptive work of Christ. And we've touched on those things already. It finds expression in a biblical Christian experience. Again, uh, remember our salvation also includes from it a deliverance from sin's reigning power. Let's see Romans 6 and 7. And it will be realized in a future glory, Romans 8, 8, 18 to 30. The reality of our union with Christ forms the eternal and the objective basis for the believer's experience. It is our, our confidence. It is our hope. And therefore, as one Puritan has said, I lost my reference, but the believer's union with Christ is the biblical reality that forms the central truth of all theology and all religion. Okay, so hard to overstate the importance of it, right? That's what he's trying to convey there. In other words, it's our union with Christ that serves as really the basis for our joy and for a true biblical assurance of salvation. <coughs> so if we're to survey the New Testament, we would see that there's a twofold approach to this doctrine. There are doctrinal statements which are explicit, and analogies which are illustrative. The doctrinal statements concerning the believer's spiritual and unbreakable union with Christ can be arranged in four categories. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, these should all sound familiar to you, these doctrinal categories at least. So, number one, the believer's position as in Christ or into Christ. Uh, this is the preferred description from the Apostle Paul, of course. 
you read through the letters that Paul writes, how often does he say that he's in Christ, or that we are in Christ, or that we've been brought uh, into, into Christ? A small sampling of those texts. I'll, if you want to jot these down, you can. We don't have time tonight to read all of these. Romans 6.3, uh, Galatians 3.27, Romans 6.11 and 8.1, 1 Corinthians 1.2 and 30. That's too fast. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 15.22, get that one. All right, how about this one? Ephesians 1.1, 3, 4, 6, and 7, and then 11. (laughs) Okay. Third before you read the whole chapter, right? And then for good measure, uh, for good measure, someone besides Paul, First Peter five fourteen. Okay. Secondly, there are statements associated with this no- notion of union with Christ that says believers are identified with Christ, especially in reference to His death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Another small sampling, really a small sample this time. Romans six four through eight concerning baptism, right? Um, the you know the view of baptism where what Paul expounds in Romans six not necessarily water baptism but what baptism signifies and then Galatians two twenty and Ephesians two four through seven. Thirdly, there are statements that describe the believer's relationship or standing before God by or through Christ. So Romans five one to two, or Romans six eight, or Galatians six fourteen. And then fourthly, statements revealing that Christ is in the believer. Okay, these four categories. And that and st- scriptures that testify to that would be like John 14, 2 through 23, uh, Romans 8, 9 through 10, or Colossians 1, 27. So four doctrinal categories that the scriptures use to speak of our union with Christ. Be either being in Christ, then with Christ, or by or through Christ, and then also texts that say Christ is in the believer. So you see how this has to be a short introduction to the topic, I think. That, that is many passages, but it also shows the centrality of the importance that this doctrine of our union with Christ um, plays in our lives. And I haven't even listed the scriptural analogies yet. There's six of those. So let me do that. Uh, we read in... Just say the whole book. <laughs> the whole... Well... I could do that, I guess, huh? Yeah, if the whole Bible is about Christ, it's pointing to Christ, right? We, you don't, if you go to the Old Testament and you don't preach a sermon from there that is about Christ, you fail to preach a Christian message, right? And, and the Old Testament is a Christian book. Don't be mistaken about that. It is, it is all about the redemptive plan that God put forth in Christ for his glory. So, but all these examples are from the New Testament. Oh, so there's that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we read in we read in John 15 this first um, allegory, and it's a descri- described as the vine and the branches. Uh, the the branch must be in a vital or a living union with the vine, or the or or the the branch won't be alive and able to produce fruit. Right. That's one of the allegories that this union with Christ is described as. Secondly, the husband and the wife, or the marriage relationship. You guys, um, those in the adult Sunday school class, have been going over this for the last three years or something, I think, in Ephesians <laughs> 5. No, when y'all are getting out of that. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the two become one flesh before God. In other words, a single entity, picturing the unity that Christ has with his bride. A third analogy, 
would be the body and its members, or its parts. And you might remember that from the Lord's Day morning services, which we touched on a few times in 1 Corinthians. We've seen in chapter, this in chapter 6 and chapter 12, the, the notion of union with Christ and his people as being described as a body, or its members. We also see it in Ephesians 4, and although each member possesses certain distinctions, each is an organic or vital member of the larger whole. Uh, fourth, described as a building and its foundation. The, the foundation is Christ, the apostles laid upon that foundation, the, the church is the building built upon it. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians 2 a few months back. It's also in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2. Again, Christ is the foundation, he's the cornerstone. And there's no need to lay another foundation, we read in God's word. Fifth, there's the contrast between the natural identification of all men with Adam, which finds its spiritual counterpart or antitype in the believer's union with Christ. So if you're trying to sum that short one up, it's the allegory of being in Christ or in Adam. And there's a difference with being in Christ or in Adam. Right? And we would turn to Romans 5 to see that most clearly. Again, it's also 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And sixth and lastly, there's the ordinance or the sacrament of baptism, which is for the believers and, and to be practiced with immersion that's why we don't as a Baptist church uh, we don't baptize babies or people who aren't professing faith in Christ because it is a sacrament or an ordinance that is meant to identify the person with Christ especially. Indeed our, our baptism is more than just a simple public profession of our faith it tells of the promise of God in which he unites us to Christ not a, it's not supposed to be a hypothetical promise but it's supposed to be a promise that's actually taken root. So, again, you can see how easy it would be to cover a lot of biblical ground just thinking about this one topic in our union with Christ. And we should be familiar with this doctrine in both its negative and its positive aspects. Herman Bobnick is really helpful here, and this is what he notes. As negatively, our union with Christ is not a mere natural union, which would be the error of the rationalists and the pantheonists. And so what they do is they suppose that union with Christ is merely part of the imminence of God. And so you hear people even today say things like, oh, well, you know, God is in everybody. Or they, they think that, um, that they can go out into, you know, the nature, you know, away from society, and they'll, they'll feel God's presence while they're there in some untouched part of society, right? That's, an, that's not what union with Christ is about. That's not what it means to have union with Christ who is God. And neither is it, it's not a moral union as well, which is the error of the Arminian teaching, um, the, the notion that God's uh, decree is dependent upon man's choices. Uh, it's not a mere union of love and sympathy. And neither is it a union that is, of es- that is of essence, which is the mystical error, which is actually becoming more prominent in our day today, with like the veneration of crystals and nature worship that we see happening in our culture today. But also, in history past, some medieval mystics were teaching that believers take partake of the divine essence and then become part of God. So it's kind of like the Mormon teaching, right, where Mormons believe when they say they become like God themselves or part of this, this God. That's, that's, it's not exactly the same, but it's still an error. It's not, it's not what the Christian teaching of union with Christ means. And lastly, it's not a sacramental union as well, which the Roman Catholics make this error. And then when they do that, they overemphasize the, the Lord's Supper, which they call it the Mass, and they hold that one physically partakes of Christ through the sacrament. That's why it's necessary to observe the sacrament for them, even after you've, quote-unquote, been saved. 
um, because there's a sacramental union that they see, and that's not what the scriptures teach as well. So that's what it's not, but what is it? Well, it's an organic union, meaning believers become members of Christ as members of an organism, albeit this organism is spiritual. Uh, you know, if, if, I, if you and I were walking down the street, somebody looked at us, and they couldn't tell, oh, these people are united in the faith. They, they couldn't see that just by looking at us. But it's because it's an organic union, but it's a spiritual union. The spiritual union is to find expression in the local assembly, the church, the body of Christ. That's why it's important that we gather together and don't forsake the assembly, as some have been known to do, which is what the author of the letters of Hebrews, uh, he shows that, he writes about that. And it's also a vital or life-giving union. The life of Christ becomes the dominating and energizing principle by, uh, with the believer through the Holy Spirit. And so we see the Bible making testimony of this and statements like this, um, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is that? It's because our union with Christ is this life-giving union to us. Or Galatians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. And all this is made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that means that it's also a spiritual union. It's a spiritual in nature. We touched on this a little bit already when we talked about it being organic. But it is mediated and sustained by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So turn with me to Romans 8 to see this. Romans 8, please. We'll read beginning at verse 9. We'll read down to 16, so a longer chunk this time. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So no Spirit, no resurrection, no Spirit, no life. Then he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Again, it's a spiritual union. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So it's a, a spiritual union. Every believer is personally or individually united to Christ directly and because of that obtains Christ's spiritual life. Again, as Romans 8 uh, has said, if Christ is not in you, you're in the flesh. But if he is in you, you're alive because of the spirit of life. It's also a legal or a federal union. I've already mentioned Romans 5 and talked about the covenant of redemption. But as the individual was once in a union with Adam or in a covenant with Adam, when a person has Christ's redemption applied to him through the effectual call, we are then said to be in union with Christ. No longer in union with Adam, even though the, the human nature still has an element of the flesh attached to it that we struggle against, but we're properly said to no longer be in Adam. We are in Christ at that point. It's legal and it's a just transaction in which God is both just and a justifier of sinners. And all of this legal our covenant obligations of the believer rest on or are met in Christ. And all of the legal 
or covenant merits of the Lord Jesus are given to us, uh, to those who believe, those who have been granted belief. Remember how it is? How does a person believe again? John 1, because they were born, not of blood, not of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but of God. So it is this union with Christ that underlies our justification by faith alone, and it's the means by which we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Right? When, when we receive Christ's righteousness, it's not infused into us in such a way that we then have to take the righteousness that Christ gives us and then maintain our salvation. That's the Roman Catholic error. When we think of how Christ's righteousness is given to us through the union that we have with Christ, it's through what we call imputation. It's legally, it's forensically applied to us so that when God looks at us, even though yet we still struggle against the flesh, he sees us with the beloved righteousness of his Son. And then we are accepted uh, because of that. Praise be to God for that. It can never be broken. Our, our union with Christ is our bedrock of assurance. And because God will not deny himself, we have been so closely identified with the beloved Son that we receive what he deserves and what he earns. So praise be to God. Now there's a lot more that I could say, but I tried to, we started late, I think, too, and I gave myself, I gave myself an 11-page limit. And so we're on page 12. So we'll stop here and we'll, I'll pray. And if there's questions, we're happy to take any questions and discuss anything that needs more clarification or anything like that. But let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there is none like you. You are the only creator. And we praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the work of redemption and how it is that we get to experience your love and your mercy and every blessing in the heavenly places all because of your kindness to us we know that we did nothing to bring it on that it is unmerited favor that comes to us certainly lord we know that we deserve wrath and judgment but we thank you for the kindness of your great love that has made it so that we can be reconciled unto you and we pray lord that you would help us to never become proud because of that that you would cause us to always be humble and that you would cause us to have great faith, knowing that you will redeem all of your elect, and knowing how it is that you have applied such a wonderful salvation to us, and how unworthy of it we are. Let us then be zealous to see your gospel proclaimed, that others may experience it as well. To you be all glory and praise, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Questions or comments? Things that need to be clarified. Can you talk a little bit more? You said so many things just now. So the thing that I wanted to stop and really think about is the organic union. Because you said it's organic, but you didn't really tell us what that means. And you almost said, like, immediately that it was actually spiritual. So, like, why do you use the word organic in the unity? Because it's an organism. So I said it remembers of an organism. So the, we're the body of Christ. So we are really together, but it's not something that you can see as well because organic when i think of organic i think of materials so it's a little misleading to my intellectual categories because to think organic and then to immediately say but it's an analogy like it's it's hard for me to understand why that organic it's a, so sometimes we have to learn scriptural terms of teaching so sometimes you could have a word that means something in one context but a word that means something in a different context and so when we go to because again we're not we're not the only um, ones who study God's word, right? And so when we look to other saints who have tried to work things out, that's the way, again, that like Bob Inc., Calvin describes it. And it's meant to show the point, not, not organic in the sense like it's something that you're grasping, 
but it's part of an organism. We really are united. It really is a real union, but it's spiritual. You can't touch spirit. Again, that's why we have those two classic distinctions in Christian theology. There is um, spiritual and there is physical. So it's a it's the union that we have isn't physical in that sense. It's spiritually wrong. So then the use of organic as an analogous way of thinking about it has to do with its interconnectedness, interdependence upon one another? Like yeah, because we're an organism. The body is an organism together, right? With Christ as its head. Or the seed. <laughs> if it's inorganic, it's not alive. It's, it's alive, living, vital. Right? Again, it, I know it's not super clear, but it, spiritual there's there's category of both the vocabulary that we as a church should try to be comfortable with and it takes time maybe i apologize for not being super clear in that but i knew i was going to go late because i knew we were going to pray for a while too so i apologize for that but yeah, the idea is that it's, it's a not it's a living <laughs> well new for us, new for us. I know. no i don't think i went very long we didn't start so late i know yeah but i mean your term organic obviously is as Nick was saying, we have to think of it from an analogous standpoint. Yes. It's not literal as far as for how we as humans understand it from the dictionary. Right. It's like, it's like I was saying, like if we, if you and I, Nick, were walking down the street together, now people say we look a lot alike anyway, so there's that, but really we have a organic bond through Christ. So that's what it's, it's speaking of. <laughs> Did anyone use the term organic in the 1700s? I think so, yeah. You think yeah. so? Bob Inc. is one I mean, the word existed, but do you think they yeah. ever applied it the way you've applied it? I, I, that's from Bob Inc., yeah. They did, and I think, I'm not trying to just defend that, but um, just reading some of the commentaries over the years and a lot of Again, the, the, and the point that he's making too is that it finds its expression in the local body. So when we think, so the, there is a physical aspect in that, right? Because we're all physically gathered together. That's why part of the reason why we struggled when COVID first hit and we're like, and then the state is like, just meet from home. It's okay, you have a live stream. Well, that's missing that, that organic even unity. It, it, you're separated. It, it's still a spiritual bond. You can't see the actual bond yeah, with your eyes. But nevertheless, it has to be, you know, it's together, it's realized again in the body of Christ. John was first, and we'll go to Sean. Yeah, is it like when you, I was thinking in my head, I've heard the term there's like an amoeba also, whatever, because the body is living and it's Always living. Uh, yeah. It has, it has bread and has organisms, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
think of like Hebrews 4 too. Like the word is living and active and sharper than it. How is the word, which is a spiritual thing, living? Yeah, but it's able to cut between soul and spirit and joint, divide between joint and marrow. It's trying to explain, again, so I don't mean to say this, I didn't mean to not imply this, but I think I said it a couple times. This is a vast and profoundly deep topic and you could probably be better to spend, I, and I was trying to give a shotgun of the different ways the scriptures speak about this. So it would probably be you know, beneficial to have like a whole 12-part series on those four categories and, and each and then six or ten-part series of six allegories as well. And now, Ross. Um, just a, a comment. Or, if I wrote down everything that you said that... Um, made me think of the uh, security of salvation and that as you point out uh, something in the process of redemption that uh, it's virtually impossible to undo uh, you, you're actually continually mentioning not trying to but uh, you know just recognizing uh, just the, the many things and an example would be for Christ to redeem us. Uh, you know, Matthew 20 talks about uh, you know, Jesus saying, I've, you know, I've come to pay a ransom for many. So we use that term ransom. Uh, as part of the redemption, and <clears throat> the ransom, we talked about this before, it was not paid to, to Satan. It was paid to right. God the Father. Yeah, propitiate his Father, ransom. Uh, the, the ransom had to be paid to purchase us, the, the elect. And for us to lose our salvation means that Jesus would have to undo the ransom. He would have to get uncrucified, it essentially. Means, yeah. It and wasn't yeah, sufficient. There's a lot of things about, you know, nobody will ever snatch them out of my hands or those that Father gives me, I yeah. will never lose. Mm -hmm. But when you also think about just the process of salvation, the number of things that have to be undone, the uh, undoing the seal of the Holy Spirit, all of the acts of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit that would have to be undone yeah. is... Uh, you, I, Don't pull that thread, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, just to point that out. Yeah, it's an encouragement to the assurance that we should have as Christians because of the cooperation of the Godhead in the covenant of redemption. Carol, and then go to you, John. I have a question, but I'm not sure if I can say it right. But there's this idea of when we're born again, that's when we become saved. Mm -hmm. But there's also this idea of we were born That act in time. Or, yeah. Or were we born again before the foundation of the world? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I, I, I think that like classically, people have talked about this in terms of what's called eternal justification. And so what the church has tried to be faithful to say is that we're not eternally justified. And so we are, even though we're chosen in Christ, 
we are still truly what Ephesians 2 says, born, we are like everyone else in the world, by nature, children of wrath. And so when we're born into this world, we're born with Adam as our you know, covenant representative. He failed in the garden, and his failure there to obey God produced in him death and guilt, and that was given to all of his posterity, insomuch that even the psalmist, David, would say, you know, I was born in, in iniquity. And yet, and yet we're the elect, right? And so in time, yeah, they, the Spirit applies that to I think that question is noted on in 34 as well, too. But it is, um, there is a need in which we have to be born again. So even though we, are, we keep those categorically separated, I guess. It's, it's similar to the idea that our salvation is finished now, but it is not yet consummated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost that prophetic perfect. Like you know that that Christ has declared it to be so, so it will come to pass. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have to come to pass. It has to come to pass in time, and He will assure us that it does. So we are elected, we're chosen before time, but it will come to pass, and it does come to pass when we are born again. Like a last Sunday, I give a comment on that too. Like last Sunday, Second Peter three eighteen, you know that. God is patient, not wishing that anyone should not come to repentance. Any one of those that were, you know, chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world. It's a process. Remember that everything we see is like God's little home alone trap. It's a process. It's very complex. <laughs> That's an interesting way of describing it. All right, Kevin McAllister. You're going to turn on the faucets to flood the basement in order to... This doesn't work well on an analytic. You got to see if you Google um, Home Alone in the Gospel. There's yeah. an interesting <laughs> there's an interesting video that should pop up. You should do it. It's uh, I forget the guy's name now. But, uh, Sherry. So how do you reconcile Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that. So someone. So I, I would have talked about this, but again, like, how does the eventual call actually happen? So I always like to go to like John three, right, where um, Jesus says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. Uh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit." And then he says, "I forget what he said. I messed up the first part." But then he says. He says, this is why I said you must be born again. As the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, which you do not know from where it comes or from where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born by the Spirit. So I say that to say that we don't actually see it happen, per se. So then, the, so then theoretically, or I think just biblically even, that could happen in your womb. And we see it with John, you know, the, the brother of Jesus, right? He leaps in his womb. I you know we lost twins Anna and I but when we were the first time we were pregnant that was really difficult and really hard and you know I, I don't I don't know for certain you know I can't say with 100% dogmatic certainty that those two babies are in heaven but I trust in the kindness of God to to believe that they are but nevertheless I'm very comfortable with just simply saying that with the Baptist confession of 1689 that elect infants are saved Eat when they die in infancy, right? That's what so, I was hearing born again. I was thinking from outward. Right, yeah, yeah. We tend to think of born again Christians after being a child. So I guess you know it's Christian. Yeah. In that way. Well, that's. Born again is whatever God accepts. There are. 
We don't, right? And yeah, we're supposed to be, and we're supposed to be baptized because of that. But there are denominations that teach, you know, that union with the water baptism and that being born again right then, and that's dangerous. That's problematic. Yeah. That's problematic. And so, again, I think part of that could be explained. So the catechism, the questions are breaking it down into more specific categories. I think some of those things might potentially be cleared up in the next two, even as well. So no pressure. Take notes about this. <laughs> yeah, Josh. Yeah, I don't want to cause a big risk. Here we go. Here we go. The eternal justification, I think, is wrong. Yes. Um, we are obviously born again in time. God elects us from eternity. I think the, the which is going to be my question, but the mystery of infants, I think, is so hard because my, my Ruth and I have lost, you know, at least two or three children, you know, in my past life as an unbeliever. Let me back it up, and then I'll go to you, uh, Linda. Um, that's why when I tried to talk at first, I think we can say with confidence that he left infants in heaven, because, again, we're saying they're elect. So what we don't know is, is every infant who dies in infancy, are they elect or not? Yeah. That's, what, that's what we don't know. But I think what we, what we can do, I think what there's biblical merit for us to do, is to note the kindness and mercy of God, and therefore believe and understand that any infant who does die, or even any person who's unable to make a profession of faith, you know, believe and confess with the mouth, 
that that person is numbered among the elect. Um, because again, it's, it's a testimony then purely to God's grace, right? There's definitely not any chance of any works or any merit on the behalf of that individual. And so we can, um, we don't want to, of course, presume God's kindness. And again, that's why I said I don't want to be dogmatic about this, but I'm totally comfortable saying the left infants are in glory. And the, the alternative would be there are elect infants in hell. And that's, that's not total right. contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just the elect, right? So, so the elect is a category that we apply to people. Infants are an age of people. How the same way any of us does, supernaturally, right? It, it, when, and I don't think an infant, when, when anybody, and this I don't even know the answer to, but if I was to die right now and I go and I'm, or let's say, yeah, let's say if I was to die right now um, and my spirit goes to be with heaven, like, what is, a, I mean, that's not, I don't have a body, but what is that comprehension like? I mean, can a spirit or the soul of an infant be able to, because of now they're in this intermediate state, be able to communicate just like we can now? I think so. Uh, I think an understand again, understanding and belief is granted to us from God. So then a, a baby could. Is that your 8 o'clock alarm? Linda, I don't want to go too far before you lose your spot, so go ahead. For a different reason, but I, I truly believe that we would be done by 8 o'clock. We're going late tonight. Thank you, guys. It's a good discussion. Go ahead, Linda. Yeah. I'll go to him. Right. That's the same. I go to that same place too. And then also again, John leaping in the womb. Yes. Because again, how does yeah. how does that little baby understand who that Jesus there? And he hasn't confessed him with mouth. Right? No, it's a divine, it's a sovereign work of the Lord in the life of the person. That's a view. That's a view. But again, that that also down. Then at that point, we also have to say David really didn't look forward to. The blessings of salvation, which you know we we do think yeah. that, especially certain people like David who experienced even in a very vital way the forgiveness of the Lord after his sin with Bathsheba, that he really understands grace and the gospel. And so there are definitely there are some people that want to say that, but I think those people also really try to vie for a discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant in such a way that they'll say that even people in the old covenant didn't really understand salvation at all. But I don't think that's right. Because again, and you do you talk about this all the time. Jesus always says, Abraham looked forward to my day. Mm-hmm. I think David could be encompassed yeah, in that. Because that's not comfort. Oh, it's not. Regeneration precedes faith. But what what comfort is that? If think about it from David's position. He cleans himself up and he says, Well, I can't go to him, but I'll go to him. Well, another one day I'll die too. Is that that's not really a comfort to him. You would think he would still, you know, he'd go do whatever people did back then <laughs> to relieve their <laughs> stresses in ways that were not godly. Right. 
So, but you have to remember, you keep bringing up that uh, John did his little dance in the womb, but what did John do? John was born, John was alive, John did his work, then, you know, died and was resurrected and then died again. I mean, John had purpose. If you look into the Psalms, the Psalmist keeps saying, you know, begging and pleading to God, it's like, how can I glorify you if I'm dead? So with that being said, elect people have to go through a process called life. The way I see it, yes, there is no such thing as an elect person in hell, because you can only, as an elect person, live. That's what I'm saying. If, a, if an infant in the womb really is elect, they'll go the way of John, being born and doing their work to glorify the Lord, because how else can they glorify the Lord? You can have that also, because we proclaim that an unborn child is alive. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that is life. It, it's a brief life if it stopped before they draw breath, but that's life. But to glorify God, just like what I'm trying to say is like John... I, I can only glorify God because he makes me glorify God. So yeah. if John is in the womb and he's glorifying God, he's weeping for joy, it's because the Lord has made it happen. So essentially, we're playing in a realm that we don't understand, we don't know the details of, but it is feasible to have a hope that a God who is merciful and good has saved us. We can't say it with definitive assurance, right? but we can say that there's a hope that this Lord who has brought a dead one like me to life could have brought a dead, unborn one to life as well. And I, I would be... So I was, I'd be careful, too, about that, because I would want to caution myself of saying there's certain other ramifications other than regeneration that really needs to be seen as well, too. Because if you think of even, like, deathbed conversions, then, would you, if a per there's no life after conversion for that person if they receive Christ right then as well. So I think we, kind of, we, kind of, we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves into a category. But I think, again, we, we trust on the goodness and the kindness of God to save sinners like us definitely we see that um, could be extended then into a person who doesn't have a chance to ever make a profession or not as well. Well, well John. I, say, you know, I think John kind of identified as a major item, which is, you know, what's the, how does the sexual calling look like? If it's, if it's a sort of, it's some criterion here by the word of God. But yeah. I thought when we were, you know, in the uh, URC denomination, right, we did teach that that was, that was like the main, the, the, the main way that that person there um, hears and responds to the gospel. But couldn't that person respond before God through the, the preaching of the gospel, through the work of the Spirit? I mean, granted, we always say this through a, a man. And so it, it, breaks the, it breaks the normal system. Right. Yeah. It's still a mystery, and I'm just saying that that same argumentation is being used by other more big-tent inclusivists to then potentially drive other categories of like now now we could potentially bring up baptism for the dead, post uh, post death um, salvation possibilities. Right. Mm -hmm. We can use the same thing as God is so good and gracious. We could use stuff about the, the, the need to not have to preach the gospel, right? Because now somebody's going to have some additional life. 
Yeah, but nobody's saying slam dunk that. Right. So we, we don't want to take that that extra step. So what we're talking about is there's feasible hope. We're not talking about that there's a slam dunk. Right. Yeah. And, and kind of on the same basis, I think it's an open, kind of like a feasible hope thing. Perhaps there's, there's possibilities for conversion, but then the deepest, darkest of Africa. See, those are different, though, I think. Yeah. I think those are, then you totally mix the category because those are people who have lived in rebellion and sin and who have merited wrath. We're talking about people but, but who die only because Adam, of the guilt of Adam. Adam's imputation, right? There are both categories of people who are guilty. But they're into the same category. No. And that's what my friend said to me in background. He said, for the children not yet being born, have you done any good or evil? So literally, I'm like, why? Right, shut my mouth. I came with the infant, elect infant discussion. He shut my mouth on this debate. And that's why I bring it up because when someone shuts my mouth on something and I pray through it, I'm like, okay, I don't have the answer to this. I think it comes like what John is saying, that you go down these other realms of possibilities. And I understand it's conflating categories in a sense, but we're all from the moment of conception, you know, eternally wicked from there on, right? So I don't think from Adam, right? So even though like, an, an infant has no, no sin of their own commission, right? They need to be saved, right? Yeah, the infant isn't going to heaven because they, not because they haven't sinned, right. but they've had the spirit effectually apply uh, Christ's accomplishment to them. I don't know that we can't say an infant can't exercise right. faith. 
139.16 says, your eyes have seen my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Don't forget the process. And I think an infant who's not able to ever see the light of day, but die, or even dies in the womb, let's say even that extreme, I don't know that that infant is then not able to make a profession. As a matter of fact, I think that, in, that that person is going to either, if they're not living in heaven for eternity, they're going to live in hell and rebellion of God for eternity as well, right? That's the other side of that coin. So I think that we, we can't say for certain that an infant can't make a profession. An infant can make a profession at that moment when it counts. Where does that profession come from? From the Lord. It's a divine word exactly. of God. Right. Right. So, right. Yeah. There's still more yeah. cognitive language of life in the world. Yeah. 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 On one hand, believe that the infants couldn't go to heaven, right? Because they were unable to make the sense of the And back to the covenant that actually made the possibility, right? Of God's election, right? And kind of starting to see that kind of potentially flip flop. Well, yeah. Well, it really makes sense within that system too, right? Because they believe that you can be saved and then lose it, even. So it's definitely there's definitely an aspect in that system in which you have to do something that the result of your own will, rather than being made willing. Good discussion, guys. Yeah, it's good to get a little heated sometimes. Hope right. we can all love each other still through all that. Too many people were interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> I still love you, Catherine, even though you swan to. Your bag. Yeah, that, should, should I pause this before I <laughs> say what you said to me? We all kind of um, have to love you at this point because if you don't, <laughs> then harmful things could befall us. All right, so I'm not going to let Adam have the last word on the recording. So yeah, <laughs> praise good. be to God. We're thankful for his, for his grace and mercy. It's good to have discussions, brothers and sisters. And, uh, the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron, and we know that sometimes that happens, sparks fly, but it's okay. We can do it in Christian love Amen. as well, too. But the Bible also says... Uh, Chris, <laughs> man! Slow to speak, quick to hear. Some people were interrupting way too much. Didn't you literally just interrupt him to say I think yeah. so. I, I know. Thanks. I started right when he ended, because I'm like a quick hearer, and I'm like sleight of hand kind of guy. And a quick speaker as well. Yes, but I'm always quick to hear. Okay. Love you guys. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Good night.